right. Unsafe Places. That's the title of this sermon series. If this is uh, new to you, we are exploring the book of James together. If you would like to open your Bibles this morning to James chapter 2, that's where I'm going to take my, my text from. But before I get there, let me do just a little bit of uh, setting a table for you. There is uh, on the wall behind me the, the title of the sermon series. However, it's based on an idea that comes from culture. And that, un, that, that idea is something that they call safe spaces. And I'm going to define that for you just a little bit as we get into the message this morning. If my Bible would cooperate and not make me throw it out the door. I'm kidding. I'm not going to throw a Bible out the door. So we're going to talk this morning about James chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. But first, let me say thank you. Um, as I was praying for you this week to receive this word, it, it come to my attention that I haven't told you this in a long time. And last week, James warned us about what happens to us when we go through trials. What he said was, if we handle our trials incorrectly, we get angry. And then I introduced you to this word last week, triggered. That when you become angry, you often get triggered. And when you're triggered, you don't need more of what the world is prescribing to you. When you get triggered, you don't need more social media. When you get triggered, you don't need more 24-hour news cycle. What you need is more of God's Word. Amen? Have you ever noticed when you go swimming how hungry you get? Or maybe if you go out and do a lot of yard work, or if you're cleaning the house and you're doing a lot of vigorous work, how your body, when it gets under a physical demand or what they call a load, you need more nourishment. Have you ever noticed that? It, why? Because you're burning more calories. And you need more fuel. Well, the same thing that is true in your body is true in your soul. When you're going through a trial, you're burning spiritual energy. So Jesus says man doesn't live by bread alone, but by the very words that comes out of the mouth of God. So when you're in a trial, you need more Bible. You need more spiritual sustenance and nourishment. Somebody say amen. In other words, church, when the world gets darker, God's people needs to go deeper. So part of the reason that we have always taken pride in calling ourselves a word-centered church is because I want you to be healthy. I want me to be healthy. And I know sometimes it looks like I can't read a clock because of the length of my sermons. But the reason sermons are so long sometimes is because it takes a while for us to understand the deep understanding and the heart and the mind of God. And some things just won't fit in 140 characters. So I know Pastoral Appreciation Day is coming up next week, but I want to say thank you. I want, I want to say thank you for allowing me to teach you the Word of God. Because everybody won't, uh, everybody won't sit and tolerate teaching of the Word. And James tells us, that some people need more Bible teaching, but then there's other folks that just need to live the Bible that they've already been taught. And both of those people sit in the same churches together. So we left off last week with him telling us that you are not automatically blessed just because you hear the Word. 
What he said was, if you hear the word and do the word, then you will be blessed. And here is James quoting his big brother Jesus, right? Who in Luke chapter 11 and verse 28 tells us that blessed is he who hears the word and obeys it. In other words, church, it's fine for you to come to church on Sunday mornings and hope to hear a good sermon. But the most important thing is not that you hear it, but that you do something with it. I mean, it's great to have a gym membership if you use it. It's the same way with coming to church. You can get spiritually fit, but only if you apply what it is that you hear from the pulpit. The greatest preacher in the world will do no good to you if you're not applying what it is he's saying to you. So this week, I'm going to teach. Is that all right? I know some of you don't know the difference, so you're going to say amen. Uh, I just feel the spirit of a teacher because we're going to deal with a tough subject this week, to be honest with you. It's one of those subjects that most preachers will skip over and never talk about from the pulpit. That's why it's good for us sometimes to teach through an entire book of the Bible because it causes us to face uncomfortable circumstances. It faces us to talk about things that are just a little bit out of our comfort zone. And so look at your neighbor this morning and say, don't squirm. Not just yet. We'll get there. Amen? Because this morning what James is going to talk about in James chapter 2 is how we are supposed to treat other people. Amen? Now you probably don't have anybody in your life that annoys you or frustrates you or troubles you. Oh, you brought them to church? Well, that's good because when this sermon's over, you can talk about this on the way home. So that's good. And <laughs> you can work this out. And if you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're still wondering what I'm talking about, we call you single. All right, so what happens in life is there's always a person or a group of people or a kind of personality that just rubs us the wrong way, true or false. It just absolutely drives you crazy. It annoys you. It gets under your skin. It agitates you. And the question is this. If we are Christians, what are we supposed to do with these people? Because the Bible tells us, not in so many words, but it never gives me permission to just slap folks. I, I mean, we could go Old Testament on some people, but we're, in, we're under grace now. And in the Old Testament, you know, there was a prophet that Nehemiah did do some slapping on some folks. And I like to bring that to people's attention just every once in a while to keep people reminded that I'm not too old and feeble to slap somebody, but I'm not going to do it in the name of Jesus. Don't you clip that out and then use that against me. i got to watch myself. This media team will make me look like something. <laughs> So what happened was because of the sinful fall of human nature, we have polarized and pressurized and we have this political environment around us and maybe now so more than ever, we have whole groups of people who don't like other entire groups of people and not only do we not talk to each other, but we just yell at one another these days. And if they didn't vote the way we voted, or they don't think the way we think, or they don't go to the right church, or they don't uh, think the right things about school systems, or, or they think the right thing about this vaccine, or the, in, whatever it is, we just yell at people. 
And James is going to teach us something here in James chapter 2. I'm going to allow you to keep your seats. Usually we stand for the reading when I'm going to do a, a, an entire passage. So, uh, but I'm going to allow you to keep your seats this morning. James chapter 2 verse 1. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example... Suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to a rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me. He's going to say it again, dear brothers and sisters. Pay attention to the fact that he's used that term twice. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the Scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. I'm going to say that again for emphasis. If you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all the laws. Verse 11. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember, remember, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to who? To others. But if you have been merciful... God will be merciful when he judges you. Wow. That's heavy. And today's passage most certainly is poignant for the day that you and I live in. Amen? Now, I titled this series, Unsafe Places. Why? Because there is a push in the culture today to establish something called safe spaces. If you haven't been here for this series, let me define what a safe space is. It is a space where people who are the same as you are welcome. But anyone who isn't like you isn't. In other words, if they think differently, if they look differently, if they are of another race or another nationality, they aren't allowed to enter your safe space because they make you uncomfortable because they are different. Now, this is exactly what James is addressing in this passage. Let me show you, and we're going to get into this. These verses confront us, and here's what they confront us with. You judge people. I'm going to say it again because it's going to be quiet. You are guilty, James says, of judging people even when you think you don't. These verses challenge how we treat other people, specifically how we treat people who we think have a better life than we do. In my Bible... 
There's a heading over chapter 2, and here's what the heading says. A warning against prejudice. Anybody else have something like that in their Bible? This is certainly relevant in the world that we, in the world that we live in today. Somebody say amen. It means a lot of things to a lot of different people, the word prejudice. And where I'm going to begin this morning is with that word. Somebody say prejudice. Let's just get it out. Let's just get I'm much more comfortable than you are. I thought I was going to be tight. You got tight. I said prejudice, and you went. So let's just say it out loud. Look at your neighbor and say prejudice. Okay, we're going to get that, we're going to get that word out of the way. Okay, just get, let it roll off your lips. We get it out in the atmosphere, and everybody will feel more relaxed, maybe. Okay, so that word has a lot of meanings. However, in the world that we live in today, the unfortunate thing is a lot of people only define it by one thing, the color of people's skin. So what we're dealing with is a, is a society where people of certain races think that prejudice means other races discriminate against them. And that's certainly true. It was true in the Old Testament. It, it was true because the Hebrews were being discriminated and prejudiced against by the Egyptians. It happened in the New Testament that the Romans looked down on the, Egypt, uh, the Israelites and the Gentiles and the Jews didn't like one another. It was true in James's day when he was writing this book. It was certainly true in American history. It, it, it was true uh, in the early days of the Civil Rights Movement. It is still true today. There are still people who look at other people who aren't exactly like them and have a different color skin of them, and they are prejudiced against them. It's okay. You can say that that's a reality and say amen. But what's important about the message this morning is that we in the body of Christ need to realize race and skin color are not the only prejudices. And it's not even the most common prejudices that you and I come in contact with. And that's what I'm going to look at this morning because the world is only centered on one problem. They're only centered on the prejudice that comes between people of different skin colors. But James is trying to get to the heart of something that is very important. He says if you show favoritism and give a special place to certain people, here's the problem, brothers and sisters. You are telling one person they are more valuable than another person. And in the body of Christ, he says, this is not going to work. Because I promise you, I promise you, you are surrounded by prejudices every day. Don't look at your neighbor. Just keep your eyes right here. You're, you're surrounded by prejudices. And by the way, most of those prejudices has nothing to do with skin color. I'm going to show you something in a minute because some of you still don't believe me. There are people who discriminate based on economic. If you can't help them by being in their tax bracket, they don't want to have anything to do with you. There are people who discriminate based on gender. There are men that don't think women are worthy of things, and there are women that think all men are the same. There are people that discriminate based on age. I'm getting to be a crotchety old man. I'm in that age bracket now where I'm looking down saying, these young people. And I remember when I was the young people and the old people were saying, these young people. So, so there are people that discriminate based on age. There are people that discriminate based on education. If you didn't go to college, you, you shouldn't even contribute to this conversation if you don't have a degree. 
Or if you didn't go to the right school, you shouldn't even contribute. Your opinion is, is kind of beneath theirs because they have an Ivy League education and you're not to their standard. And I'm going to tell you something. These, these, these discriminations travel both directions. Poor people can discriminate against rich people too. Young people can discriminate against old people too. That men and women can both look at the other sex and say, you ain't right. And, and, and so what James is really trying to address here is that church people, remember, he's writing a letter to the church. He's not writing a letter to Congress. He's not standing in front of the Supreme Court of the United States and trying to convince society how to act. He's talking to believers. And he's telling the church to not prejudge. That's the root of that word prejudice. Prejudge. And what it means is we make decisions before we get to know a person. Now remember, James is writing this letter not to society, but to his brother's church. He's warning the church about making prejudgments about people. He's telling us that the church should never assume about people. That we should have another way to bring people into our fellowship that has nothing to do with how, what we see when they walk into the sanctuary. In other words, he's telling us that how they handle people out there is not the same as we should handle them in here. Think about it. If we treat people the same way the world treats people, what evidence is there that we have met Jesus? What evidence is there that we have the Holy Spirit if we treat everybody and hold everybody to the same standards that the world does? And somebody's saying under their breath, Pastor, I don't do that. I'm not prejudiced. You sure? Because we all do it. And when I say all, I'm not backing down. Me and the Holy Ghost ain't scared of none of you. Because I'm talking about from the pulpit to the pew, we all have prejudices. Uh, not me, Pastor. Hold on to yourself. Because I've told you that James is the most practical book of the New Testament. And reasons like this is exactly what I mean. Many of the books of the Bible address how we're supposed to treat each other. Right? Paul says, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even in Christ, or as Christ in God's name, or God is in Christ's name, has forgiven you. Ain't that sweet? Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. If they smite one cheek, offer the other cheek. We know how we're supposed to treat people. We know that Paul said to have compassion on each other, that when somebody weeps, we should weep with them, Right? But James is addressing a deeper problem because he's not telling us how we're supposed to act toward other people. He's saying, I want to change the way you think about other people because my first point this morning is we treat people better than we think about them because some of us are good fakers. Some of us act like we appreciate folk. Some of us act like we get along with people. But in our heart and in our mind, we're faking it until we make it. And if all we ever do is modify our behavior toward other people, we're really just being phony. 
Because in your heart, you're saying, well, I can think whatever I want to about them as long as I don't act on it. That's kind of like saying, well, I got murder in my heart, but I haven't slit his throat yet. Well, Jesus said that once you considered the murder, you're already guilty of it. I wish I had a witness. So James says, listen, if you don't have anything nice to say, this goes beyond just keeping your mouth shut. He says, if you don't have anything nice to say, see, Paul says, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say nothing. That's what your mama used to tell you. That's what your grandma used to say. That's what your auntie told you. That's what Paul said. But James says, if you don't have nothing nice to say, figure out why. Check your heart. Why is it that when you see another human being, you see something that is not worth, y'all not going to help me. Why is it that when you see another human being, you don't see somebody Christ died for? Why is it that when you put value on people, you put value on this person but not that person? On this group but not that group? Why does this person deserve salvation and grace and mercy but not this person? So James is telling us on a deeper level here something that goes beyond what you say out loud. This is why he's challenging to a degree that nobody else is in the New Testament. And to make the point, he uses the illustration of how we make quick judgments about rich people and poor people. Now, I want you to understand what he's talking to, who he's talking to. Jesus hasn't been in heaven very long. The church is just getting started. And the Jews in that day didn't like the Gentiles. And the Gentiles didn't like the Jews. And the rich and the poor, they didn't really hang out together. And the slave and the free... They lived entirely different existences. But what happens is this. Jesus dies, goes back to heaven, the Holy Ghost falls. All these believers start getting filled with the Holy Ghost and falling in love with this man named Jesus. And they all start finding their way to these churches. And they walk into the church and they're like, what are you doing here? Because Gentiles and Jews didn't go to the same place. Bond and free didn't go to the same place nationalities didn't intermingle and they're showing up at church and they're saying hey what are you doing here and they're saying hey what are you doing here oh well God's my father well, he's my father too so I guess that makes us step brothers and sisters and now we got this weird blended family going on where we got to learn how to get along even though we don't like each other and this is who James is writing this letter to and we have to figure out how to get along and that's why he starts in James chapter 2 verse 1 my brothers and sisters my brothers and sisters. That don't sound religious. That sounds family. What he's trying to paint a picture of is this. In the church, we're family. And when he drew a line, he says, this is why we don't treat each other the way they do out there. Because we're not them. We are family. I get my... I'm a, I grew up in the 70s. You know me. I... He says, hey, we didn't know each other. We're not from the same backgrounds. We didn't even like each other the day before yesterday. But now we got to figure it out because now we're family. Amen. And he starts talking about how church service shouldn't look like the world. How many of you have ever went to a concert or a sporting event that you had to buy a ticket before you got there? Uh -huh. How many of you know that when you buy tickets for things like that, the best seats cost the most money? Okay, so in... in in James's day, in James's day, when you went to a Jewish synagogue, which was like their church, um, 
you had to buy your seat on a high holy day. And the best seats cost the most money. We were coming back from San Antonio one time, and we got upgraded to first class because, uh, and it didn't cost us nothing. And it almost ruined me for life. Because it was so luxurious. And I had all this space, and nobody was in my lap. And they were bringing us drinks, and I felt like a king. I was expecting a foot rub. I was, I mean, they were drinking, they were bringing us snacks and full meals, and they were like, can we be of a service? And I was looking at my shoulder saying, how do those peasants survive at the back of the plane? Like, it almost ruined me for life. I, I didn't think I was ever going to be able to fly coach again. But the best seats cost the most money, right? And imagine if, in order for you to come to church this Sunday, you had to go to Ticketmaster and buy your family's seats before you showed up. So some Sunday, you wake up late and the kid's got a runny nose and their hair's all over the place and they can't find their left shoe and, and you're like, you know what, we're running late. Honey, go on Ticketmaster and buy some of the good seats so we can show up late and they won't make us park in the muddy part of the lot and they'll meet us with the water in the parking lot. And they'll usher us in the back door. And we'll get the VIP treatment this Sunday. So you show up and all your seats are prearranged and assigned based on how much money you paid for them. And meanwhile, there's people in the back standing up because they can't afford good seats. Or sitting in the floor, James says. And that's the way it works. That way you know who the rich people are and who the poor people are. Imagine if somebody came to church today and they walked in and they said, Hey, I've never been here before. Where should I sit? And the usher says, Well, I don't know. Do you have your W-2? Because we have tiered seating based on your income. Amen. James says that's fine if you're at a concert. In the world, you get what you pay for. But when you come to church, we're family. And we don't operate here like they do there. Amen. Can you imagine if families treated each other like the world does? Oh, hey. I'm so. Oh, and you brought my grandson. My grandson. You brought my grandson. Oh, he's so cute. Oh, I'm so glad you're here for Easter dinner this year. Everyone's here. And just like every year, did you bring your W2? I did. Oh, the W-2. Let me look at that. Oh. Oh. Looks like you took a step back this year, huh? I mean, you know I had to take some time off when the baby came. <sighs> I'm sorry, but uh, with this kind of bottom line, um, unfortunately, you're going to be demoted out of the premium package. And you're going to have to be placed in the pot liquor package with the family. That means you're going to have to eat last. And hopefully there's enough biscuits. Uh, you're going to have to, uh, your water's your only option, a drink. Everyone gets to eat dessert first, but you get to lick the whipped cream bowl. Um, and also, your car's in the driveway. That's part of the premium package. With the pot liquor package, you have to move that down past our neighbor's house. I'm sorry, just two, two, two driveways down. To your left. But Dad, it's pouring down rain outside. Yes, some brother's coming, and he's going to be here soon, and guess what? He got the promotion he was looking for, so I'll take 
little guy here, my grandson, and you can go out there and, and if you move it quick, you won't get too wet. She won't get too wet. She won't get too wet. So it's okay if we treat the world like that, but because we're in the family of God together, we're supposed to love each other like brothers and sisters. Somebody say amen. And so we don't operate on the world's economic structure. And so if somebody comes in, we don't treat them differently based on their income level. That's what, that's what James is saying. James is trying to show us how easy it is for us to make snap decisions based on what we see. James is a relatively short book. It's only five chapters. It was a little letter. If you remember the first week of this series, I taught you that he was writing this letter to new believers, new converts. This may have actually been the first Bible that any of these people ever had that could be passed around in the churches. And if he is only going to write five chapters, that means he's only got a limited amount of space to teach people. Why does he feel that prejudice is something so important that he's going to include it in his short little book. He must really think that this is a problem. Somebody say amen. Prejudice could be described as jumping to a conclusion about someone you don't know. Are you with me? You don't know them, but you jump to a conclusion about some folks you don't know based on false ideas that you believe are true. And you do this multiple times a day. Oh, you don't believe me, so let me help you. The truth is, in a millisecond, you make assumptions about people. And those assumptions are not based on fact. They are based on things that you believe to be true before you meet the person. Like, like what our family taught us when we were growing up. The, the society and the culture that we grew up in. What the media has said to us. And those things have trained us to prejudge a person that we don't even know. If you walked into this church for the first time, and you're from a fundamental background, you've been to church your whole life, and you're from a very ecumenical fundamentalist type church and you walk into the sanctuary and you ask one of the ushers who's the pastor and they point at the guy in camouflage immediately you're going to think what kind of pastor is this because I don't have what you think what your prejudiced mind thinks a pastor is supposed to look like I mean I got all that it's hanging in the closet in the back of the closet I got them all. I was one of the last holdouts. All the other guys had already switched, and I was one of the last holdouts because this is what a preacher's supposed to look like. But, but you have a prejudiced mindset based on where you've been and what you've been taught. Now, it's not a fact. It's not in the Word. It doesn't say, Thou who preacheth, mutheth, weareth, the suiteth, and tieth. The 11th commandment. It's not in there. But you have a prejudice, some of you, have a prejudice about what a preacher's supposed to look like. In other words, we have these built-in truths that we have decided on, and we use those truths as a lens to look at people through. And it's all going to serve us better if I, can, if I can get you to agree that we all do this. So I'm going to have an exercise with you, okay? We all discriminate. 
We all have prejudices. We all show favoritism. So let's take a look at the wall, and I want to see what your first instincts are. Who's happier? You've already decided. You don't need five seconds. It was a snap decision. The moment it came up on the screen and I asked the question, you decided. Why? Because you have made a millisecond assumption based on a lifetime of belief that you hold dear. You think a happy person looks one way and a not as happy person looks another way. Uh-huh. You still don't believe me. You can't help it, by the way. You did it without thinking about it. It went through the filter of your belief system. That's what I'm trying to teach you. How about this next one? Who's more trustworthy? Who's more successful? You already decided. Because you think somebody who looks one way is a successful person and somebody who's doing another position isn't as successful. You've already decided. How about this next one? Who's more confident? You assume somebody who looks a certain way feels a certain way. And you believe that because they dress a certain way and they hold a certain poise, that they feel a certain way. And do you, do you know why you believe that? Because it's how you feel. And you dress the way you, you dress slumpy and you dress uh, uh, down and you don't try to draw attention to yourself because you don't feel like you deserve it because you don't have confidence. Therefore, you look through that lens to judge other people. Is anybody with me? How about this next one? Who's a better father? See, in your mind, in your mind, you've got a type of what a good father is supposed to do and what a good father is supposed to look like. And immediately, if you had to pick one of these, who's the better father, immediately you pick one based on your history. In less than a second, you placed value on another human being. And you haven't spoke a word to them. Does anybody know what I'm seeing? Seeing what I'm preaching this morning. Based on absolutely nothing except how they carry themselves. In less than a second, if a boy... Uh, Jesus and Holy Ghost, you're going to have to help me simultaneously here. We have done a lifetime of damage to children. Because we have made snap assumptions and told them things based on our belief system. If a boy or a young man... If his voice is a little octave too high, we make assumptions about who he may or who he may not be attracted to. And you don't even know him! If a girl wants to go out and play with Tonkas and not Barbies, we make assumptions. And we start speaking things into their life based on nothing except what we have seen. That's what James is talking about. This is why James thinks it's so important. In his little letter, he's going to take time out to tell us that you are not just defining a person, but you're breaking God's law because you are assigning value to a person's life based on a decision not that God made, but that you made in less than a second. And you were learning these things before you even realized it. Some of you, you grew up in a home 
were, and you were taught that certain things hold more value than others. Some of you were raised in a home where you were, you were given rewards for good grades. And you were held back or you were punished for not so good grades. And you, in your mind, you look at that, you look at life and other people through that lens now. Some of you were trained that sports, teamwork, and being gifted puts more value on you. Y'all not going to help me. All the brothers in the house. Some of you worked yourselves to death. You know why? Because you were taught when you was a little boy that chores makes a man. And you've been trying your whole life to earn the title of man because somebody put value on something that God never did. And you have never felt worthy even in your father's presence because you constantly have tried to kill yourself to provide when you wasn't the provider to start with. That's what James, James is, see he's going way deeper than that's how we treat each other. He's saying, you don't see what you're doing when you, when you devalue another person. You are taking the place of God. You're looking at that person and, and you are trying to destine them. You are trying to put purpose on them or remove it. And you're damaging them, some of them, for life. And so we end up very discontented even as a Christian because we think, well, if I was the boss, or we think, if I had a nicer house, or if I, had a, if I had a husband or if I had a wife, and we end up in the comparison trap. Have you ever noticed how perfectly content you are with what you got until your friends upgrade? Like, I like my phone until I saw yours. And now I'm like, this phone's a real piece of junk. I was waxing my car last week, and then you got a new one. And I'm out there going, look at this bald tire, and look at that dent somebody put in there. I can't stand this car. It stinks. It smells like French fries. And You were happy with it last week. We're defining our value like the world, which is based on outside appearance. And that's why James is addressing the church. He's saying the culture has their set of values, but the church has a different set. Christianity's message is that value comes from the inside and comes out. The culture says that I can tell how valuable you are by looking at the externals. And we don't like to admit it, but we really do think that people have better lives than we do. That's why you like to watch the housewives of this state or that state. You like to watch this person uh, play games and they've signed a contract for money that you'll never realize in the entirety of your life. You look at other people and you say, they really do have a better life than I do. You look at people's social media. You look at their Facebook and you see the vacations they're taking and you're like, why can't I have that life? But can I tell you that they call that thing Facebook for a reason? Because they can't call it soul book. Because the Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 and 7, when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. He looked at him and said, surely 
Surely God's got his hand on him. Surely God's going to use him. Surely this is the one that God wants to have in this position. Surely. He took one look at him and said, Surely. He looked at his Facebook and said, Surely he's got good money. Surely he's a good husband. Surely she's a good mother. Look at her Facebook. Her kids are always smiling and they're clean. And my kids have got snot running all down their faces and I can't even find their left shoe. And Surely they're a good parent. And surely they have a happy marriage. And surely. And, and that's what we do. We look. But look at verse but the Lord said to Samuel don't judge by the appearance or the height for I have rejected him the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them people judge by outward appearance but the Lord looks at the hearts Samuel assumes because his Facebook looks cool that God must have his hand on him but Samuel was sent to anoint the next king not the next influencer and here's why James is wanting the church to reject this trend. If you came to the sanctuary this morning and there was a new family sitting in your section, because I know most of you got assigned seats in here. If you came to the sanctuary this morning and there was a new family sitting in your section, you've never seen them before, and the dad is dressed nice and he dressed nice and he's fit. He's got nice hair, not like mine. He's got tan, not like you. He's friendly. He's engaging with everybody around him. Smiling at everybody. Mom is one of those moms that just kind of makes you sick. Because you know her shoes and her purse match. Her outfit is the latest trend. Her hair is perfect. All their kids are well behaved, sitting there not making a sound, dressed in their Sunday best. Without even realizing it, you would assume... Those people are spiritually okay. You would assume they don't need Jesus. You would assume they are obviously saved, they're not suffering from depression or struggling in their marriage, and they're not hurting. All because of what you see. Meanwhile, if it was a single mom sitting in your section, her shirt went out of style three years ago. And it's still got something left on it from breakfast this morning. Her purse and her shoes aren't even from the same decade. Her hair is pulled up in a tie and that thing is holding on for dear life and about to split any minute. Her kids are acting like three circus bears that just got out of the cage this morning. One's missing a shoe, one's missing a tooth. And the third one is looking at your calf of your leg like it is snack time at the zoo. You would have a different assumption about that woman as you did that family. You would look at that woman and say, she's probably at the end of a rope. She probably needs Jesus. She probably needs a good therapist. She probably doesn't have a good home life. All based on what you see. So, here's another danger to this. Not only do we do it to other people, we also do it to ourselves. Some of us, when you step on that scale, this is all I'm comfortable taking off up here in front of y'all, but you get the idea. And why do we do that? 
Because for some of us, whatever numbers on that scale defines to us who we are. Some of you, when you open that checkbook, whatever number you find in there defines who you are. Your perceived value is tied up in those numbers, not in the one who created and breathed life into you. See, see listen to what he says in verse 5, James. Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? In other words, he said there are two economies. The world's economy of money and heaven's economy of faith. And you can be poor in one and overflowing in the other, and that works both directions. You can have plenty of worldly riches and be destitute in faith. Or you can have nothing that the world deems as important, but have faith enough to move mountains and raise the dead. So think about this. You walked into church this morning, and you sat down, and there's a long-haired guy sitting there, and his beard's not trimmed, and, and he's, he's obviously disheveled, probably hasn't bathed in a few days. And you get to talking to him because you, you locked eyes with him, and now you're stuck. And you say, hey, you from around here? And he says, yeah, I, I don't drive. I don't have a driver's license. I don't drive, so I, walk, I walked here. And I decided to come to church this morning. Oh, oh, well, what do you do for a living? Well, I don't really have a job. Yeah, I preach sometimes, but I don't really have a job. So, wow, how, how about your family? Yeah, I'm kind of estranged from my, my mom and dad, and I don't really... I'm not even in the same town anymore. My parents got married young, and, and I left home, and I just kind of been on my own for a long time. Oh, wow. So where, where do you live? Well, I really don't have a home. I just kind of crash on my friend's couches from, from time to time. And, oh, so you're not married. No, I don't have a wife. I've never even been in a remote, romantic relationship. You would look at this guy and say, what a loser. You're in your 30s, you don't have a home, you don't drive, you have no plans, you have no families. Congratulations, you just judged Jesus. Because what he had on the outside was not very attractive. But he was God on the inside and he was perfect and full of faith. And that's what James is trying to get across to you. He said, my brother didn't have anything on the outside that made this world think that he was anything special. But what he had on the inside, he was rich in faith. So, and we're living in a world full of a lot of judgment, but not very much love. And that's what we're supposed to do in the church. Because he said, look, every one of you have a limited supply of money. Your resources is limited. But what you have is unlimited is love. And he said, you can excel in love and giving to people even if you don't have the finances to back it up. Go ahead and give the Lord a hand clap if you... Resonate with this this morning. So there's a book that I recommend all the time to young people that are wanting to get married. And it's written by a, a, a man named uh, Gary Thomas. And it's called The Five Love Languages. And basically here's what he says. He says, he says if, you don't, if you don't feel like the person who says they love you loves you, it may be because they don't understand your love language. And, and if you have never, if you've never said this phrase, well, I know you say you love me, but I don't feel 
that you love me. If you've never said that, you're single. Because if you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And the five love languages go like this. A lot of times somebody doesn't know how to show you love because we all give and receive love differently. And if you don't understand, it's kind of like if I was going to put two people together in holy matrimony and one of them spoke English and the other one spoke Russian. They're going to have to learn how to communicate. One of them's going to have to learn some Russian. And the other one's going to have to learn some English. So if you, when you get married, you and her, you and him, probably don't speak the same love language. So you're going to have to become bilingual in love. Like, love lingual. You're going to have to learn how to speak their language. Let me give you a for instance. His five categories of love are this. Words of affirmation. Quality time, physical touch, acts of service, and receiving gifts. That's the five love languages. Okay? So if you know what your love language is and you know what their love language is, you can figure out what you're doing to try to make them feel loved that's not working. Because some people say, well, I don't think you love me. What do you mean I don't love you? I go to work every day. I paid for this house. But if her love language is not receiving gifts, she's not hearing love and all that. She's just thinking you're doing what you're supposed to do. See, I'm an acts of service kind of guy. If I love you, I'll work myself to death for you. I'll build onto the house. I'll fix the car. I'll mow all the grass because I'm an acts of service kind of guy. But my wife doesn't really receive, even though she appreciates she's, that's not how she's more of a physical touch person. And so she, she receives things through that. And, and, and so the, wor- the world runs on judgmentalism. The church is supposed to run on mercy. And when we understand that the world doesn't all receive love the same way, we're, we need to be merciful toward everybody. Because everybody that comes in is hurting, and they're all hurting in different areas. And they're all receiving love at a different level. And you and I are not just going to be able to throw out a blanket statement and say, we're a church of love, because everybody doesn't receive love the same way. And so we have to be merciful. And I'm going to close with this thought. Our problem is we think, if, if I get that picture up on the wall, we think when God looks at us, this is what he sees, because this is what we see. When we look at the world, this is what we see. Some people are taller than others. Some people have more faith. Some people have more ability. Some people have more talent. And we think that the world looks like this, that, that everybody has different abilities and faiths. And I can't pray like this person. I can't sing like that person. I can't preach like that person. I can't do like this. I don't have the money so-and-so has. And we think that the world looks like this, But you have to remember where God is. Because when God looks at the earth, He looks at this same scene, but it looks much different. Because He's looking down on all of us. And from His perspective, we all look the same. And as soon as we get that, we realize that we're all sinners. We all need grace. And none of us are better than the others. When, when my two oldest were little, I'm talking about when Jared was like a two, three-year-old, my oldest daughter would get in trouble for correcting him. 
she would try to punish him for his misbehavings. Now, if you know Jared, you know that she wasn't wrong. He was acting up. What she was accusing him of, he was guilty of. What she got in trouble for was it wasn't her place to do the correcting. My volume escalated to her because I was constantly saying, let me be the parents. We in the church have taken it upon ourselves to judge People and their decisions and their lifestyles and their choices and their habits and their hobbies. And God is telling us through James, will you let me be the dad? Brothers and sisters, will you let me do the correcting? I'm not talking about blatant biblical sin. There's a time and place for that. First Corinthians teaches us how to handle things inside the church. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about... How we prejudge people when somebody makes a mistake, and all of a sudden it doesn't matter how many good deeds they did before or since, the church never wants to give them a break again. I've seen people, the Bible says that the gifts of God are without repentance. That means that when He's called you and put something on you, you and all the devils in hell can't get it off of you. But the church. The church has constantly tried to take away what God himself put on people. Because we say, well, they failed. They made a mistake. They made an error. Honey, if you could just see the skeletons that are in this preacher's closet, some of you would have never showed up at church this morning. And you certainly wouldn't come back next week. And you certainly wouldn't allow me to lay hands on you. Because you know why? God sees us all the same. Because he knows every one of us have the same things in common. We're all flawed. We've all goofed up. We broke our relationship with him. And we're going to do it again. If Jesus don't blow that trumpet real, real soon, we're all going to break the law again. And James said if you broke one, you broke them all. You're guilty of everything. He put every one of us on the same standard and said you're all guilty. You're all going to be judged, but it won't be by one another. Let me do the correcting. Allow me to be the one to judge. You got one job. You got one job. Show love. Just, you got one job. Show love because the world does it the wrong way. But when we're brothers and sisters... We handle people differently because we see value in everybody. People ask me one time, I say, Pastor, how come you don't preach on all these social, all these social things? Like, you know, when, the, when it's racist and stuff. And I've dealt with that because the Bible deals with it. But I don't, I don't use this pulpit as a political stand because we're not supposed to deal with things the way they are. I'm not, I'm not supposed to love you any more than I love her or less than based on something as temporal as the color of our, the pigment in our skin. That's, that's not what the church is. That's the way they deal with it, but I'm not preaching to them. I'm preaching to the family of God, and in the family of God, we, we're not supposed to care about that. 
I know that attitudes, and we, 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 we need the word. That's what James is saying here. He says, but this is way, way, way past skin color. I just showed you. It's how people dress. It's where they went to school or if they finished school. What they do for a living. What do you, that's the first question everybody asks, right? When you first meet somebody. Oh, what do you do for a living? Why do you think they want to know? Because they're nosy. And they want to prejudge you. Absolutely. I met my dear sister here. She said, I remember you used to come in the DMV. I said, oh, God bless you. You worked at the DMV. Because everybody at the DMV always looks like they're about ready to murder a chicken. Right? Like, like It's got to be a rough life. I always go in and pray for them. I'm like, Jesus, you need to help these people because somebody's about to die in here. Right? But, when you, but you always ask somebody, right, what do you do for a living? Because they want to prejudge you based on the answer. They don't know a thing about you. You say, I'm a correctional officer. Or worse yet, I'm a police officer. Oh. Because they have a prejudged idea about police officers. Or about nurses. Or about lawyers. Or about politicians. Well, I think we can leave politicians out. That's another sermon for another time. People want to prejudge you, and they don't even mean to do it. I just showed you that through these illustrations. That we constantly do it. We're constantly guilty of it. And that's why none of us should ever think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Because one day, the Bible says He will judge the quick and the dead. He will judge. He he will judge. And I can't do anything to make Him love me. And I can't do anything to make him stop loving me. And that's why I can't put value on myself. And I can't put value on you. Because I didn't breathe air into you. I didn't create you. I didn't know you when you were in your mother's womb. And you're not put on this planet to please me. The Bible says that you were created for his glory. And as long as you are living your life intending to please him don't you let the judgmental looks and the attitudes and the criticisms of this world make you feel devalued you are the apple of God's eye you are special in the kingdom he put destiny and purpose inside of you and all you do is every day walk it out and say God let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight oh Lord my strength and my redeemer and you walk out your faith in Christ and don't you look down on yourself and don't don't you let anybody else look down on you and certainly don't you look down on anybody else because in the end we all need Jesus you were loved by your parents you what you were abandoned by your parents you you, you came up with money you came up from an orphanage you, you you work in the institution you don't work at all doesn't matter we all need Jesus I'm black, was raised by a white family. I'm white, but I was raised by, around black people. Or I was, I was raised around prejudiced people. Don't know that matter. We all need Jesus. I lost my mother when she was young. And I was young, and I grew up, and I was abused and neglected, and nobody cared for me. Oh, somebody cared for you. Because had the devil had his way, you wouldn't be here today. 
But God's hand of mercy has been on you your whole life, whether you recognize it or not. And His protection has saw you through your days. He was your shield and He was your defender. And whether you realize it or not, you are here today because you are special in heaven. Even if you don't feel accepted on earth, you are special in heaven. And His value is on you. Pastor, you don't know the mistakes I've made. Can I tell you? You don't know what I've done. You don't know the mistakes I've made. And I'm still loved. And I'm still accepted in the Beloved. Because my worth is not in what I've done. How dare you be so arrogant to think that you could fracture what God Himself put together? Pastor, I've made grievous errors. I've broke God's laws. Yeah, James said all of us have. We've all broke all the laws because we're guilty of one. We broke them all. But Jesus' sacrifice washes us all clean. So who's here this morning and you have felt out of place? You have felt unloved, unworthy? You felt the guilt and the shame of what you have done. And you know that you know that you need a different walk and relationship with Jesus Christ. If that's you, come down to this altar. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to make a big scene, but we are going to pray with you. Because we, listen, I know somebody under the sound of my voice knows what this feels like. And you have made mistakes, and because of the mistakes you've made, you think there's no way God can love me. I promise you. Your failed marriage has not stopped God from loving you. Your, 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 your problem that you have where you got in the wrong bed, that didn't stop God from loving you. That money you stole, that lie you told, God is still in love with you. And all He's asking is you come and make things right. God, I'm, I'm a sinner and I need your grace. I've made mistakes and I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to walk this life anymore. I want to be committed to you. Pastor, I've been saved. I'm not asking you if you're saved. I'm asking you, how do you feel in your relationship with Christ? Because James says, you have devalued others and you've also devalued yourself. And I want you to feel like a million dollars when you leave here today. I want you to feel your worth. Prayer team, when you come up here, that's exactly what I want you to pray over these individuals. I want you to pray, God, let them see how special they are. Let them feel how valuable they are. Am I going to drag this out? Because I know i got to preach tonight. And I'll preach harder tonight than I am this morning. But somebody else needs to come. I, listen, the Holy Spirit could reveal it to me, but I don't, I don't do that stuff anymore. I used to, I used to come get you, but... He don't, he don't let me do that anymore. I just feel so worthless come to this altar. I've made so many mistakes. How could God love me come to this altar? There's value in you. There's value in you. God loves you. If there's a refrigerator in heaven, your picture's hanging on it. Crazy about you. James said, I know. I watched my brother die. He loved you so much. He had the opportunity. He had the chance to come off the cross. But what did he say? It's better for them if I stay.
God, every person in this room that feels the weight of sin, I pray right now that they would receive forgiveness, that they would repent, that they would turn from their decisions that they have made and begin to seek you with a whole heart, that they would get a fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit on them. God, that they would walk differently when they leave this room because of what they are laying down at this altar, that they would never again feel the condemnation that the enemy tries to place on their shoulders, but that he who the Son sets free is free indeed, and they are receiving freedom in this altar this morning. And that from every day forward, the enemy will no longer be able to lie to them and tell them that they're not worth it because... You've already made us worthy. And in the name of Jesus, touch them, heal them, anoint them.